Welcome back to the listener's commentary on Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. In this session, we are looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. This is one of the most well-known and beloved sections of this letter. At both a devotional and scholarly uh, level, tons has been written about this particular section of Philippians. It's uh, This section is just so beautiful that some of you even contended that Now, this is a fragment of like an early Christian hymn. I I find that idea to be highly speculative. The only place we ever find this is in this letter to Philippians and then quotes of this letter to Philippians. And so I think it's highly speculative that it's a hymn and there's real no, no external evidence for it. But the fact that this section is so uh, beautiful and in some ways so lyrically powerful is what kind of leads people to say, man, it almost sounds like a hymn. And It really does speak to the beauty and power of this paragraph. And so these are some really central words, and I would even say they're words that are worth memorizing and meditating on to deepen your devotion to Jesus. So let's just jump in. And as we do, let's first recall the contextual setting to this paragraph to make sure we haven't lost track of what's going on in the letter and where exactly we're at in the letter. Whenever we study scripture, that's really, really important is to make sure we recall the context. So the immediate context of Philippians 2, 5 through 11, is Paul's words in the preceding paragraph that urge us to unity through humility. He he tells us to do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility to consider one another more important than ourselves. He tells us that we shouldn't act out of our own self-serving interest, but we should consider others as their interest is more important than ours. And it's really you first, not me first, as we said in our last recording in this commentary on the section just before this. So that's the immediate context, this unity through humility. But more broadly, even as we recall kind of the flow of thought of the whole letter and what's going on in the whole letter, one of the major concerns of the letter to the Philippians is to subvert any residue of the pride that came from their high status as a Roman colony. And we talked about that in our introduction to the letter, that this led to sort of a civic pride and not everyone who lived in the city you know, enjoyed the the position as a Roman citizen. And so those who were citizens and enjoyed the benefits and privileges and rights of that colonial status and that citizenship tended to look down on and treat it with a, a certain level of disdain those who did not. And in a culture that where class mattered and status was pretty significant, this was important. And Paul wanted to to uh, kind of subvert that in this letter so that it didn't begin to take root and grow within the church. And he was going to replace that pride with a gospel-centered humility that put others first. And so throughout the letter, Paul offers concrete examples of the way this could play out so they could see it. They could see it lived out and therefore begin to imitate it. And he has offered himself in prison as one such example in chapter 1, where he's rejoicing in the advance of the gospel, even though his circumstances are less than ideal. He's rejoicing in the advance of the gospel, even though some people are really taking advantage of his circumstances and hoping maybe to make life a little more miserable for him. He's um, wanting to remain on in the flesh because it's better for them, even though going and being with Jesus is better by far, he says. And so he's offering himself as a concrete example of this gospel-centered humility. We'll see the same thing later in chapter 2 with Timothy and Epaphroditus, 
Well, here in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, we have the centerpiece example, the the epitome of this kind of self-giving humility. Uh, We have the, the main example that needs to really both Uh, affect our motivations to live this way and really be the pattern for living this sort of way. So what is the preeminent example of putting others first for the sake of the gospel? Well, it's Jesus himself, and that's what we have here in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. So listen to what Paul has to say. He says, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. The word attitude in that verse, verse 5, is better more the sense of like mind or mindset, think this way is the idea. And he's really calling us to think a certain way. Think this way. What does this refer to? Well, this refers back to what he's just said in the preceding sentences about uh, considering others more important than yourselves. Don't look out for your own interests, but look out for the interests of others. Think this way. Have this mindset. That's really the focus. And this is the same mindset that was in Christ himself. And Some scholars have suggested maybe in Christ should be understood maybe in more Paul's typical sense, like being uh, in Christ. But probably best is the idea of, no, this mindset was the mindset that was in Christ himself. And so you think the way that Christ thought. You think the way uh, with humility and self-sacrifice that Jesus himself thought that drove his life. So think this way. And then what Paul does in the the rest of this section is he begins to describe how Jesus acted and how this kind of thinking led Jesus to behave. So he says, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, there's a lot in this verse that we need to make sure we pay attention to. So just take note of this. He says, who, referring to Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, this is describing Jesus prior to becoming flesh, prior to his birth as a baby in Bethlehem. It says at that time that he existed in the form of God. That word form, if you are familiar, say, with ancient philosophy, the philosophy, say, of Plato or Aristotle, that word form had really almost a very technical meaning there. And then in popular level conversational Greek, it came to just mean the essence of a thing. So Jesus existed in the form of God means he existed as very God of very God. Like whatever form God has, Jesus had that same form. He existed in that same form, the essence of godness. And even though he existed in the very essence of godness, this verse 6 says, he did not regard equality with God. So he existed in the very essence of godness. He had complete equality with God. um, And yet he didn't regard that as a thing to be grasped. Now, that phrase, a thing to be grasped, really important that we understand that. What does that mean? Is it like he's trying to get it but doesn't have it? Well, no, we know that's not the case because Paul just said he existed in the form of it. He was equal to God. So it's not like he's trying to get something he doesn't have. So what does it mean to be a thing? He doesn't consider it a thing to be grasped. Well, the idea is 
to cling to, hold tightly to, for one's own advantage. That's the idea of this thing to be grasped. So Jesus didn't regard his equality with God something to be held on tightly and used for his own advantage. And remember, in context, this is an example of uh, this putting others first, this not serving yourself, considering the needs of others. Well, Jesus, because he considered the needs of others and put others first, didn't cling to his equality with God and use it for his own gain. Instead, verse 7 says, he emptied himself. And this is one of the main clauses in this section where uh, that, that we need to pay attention to. We have a lot of kind of subordinate clauses, although he existed in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself. Main clause. This is one of the things Jesus did because of the way he thought. What does it mean that he emptied himself? Well, it's, again, we have to think very carefully about that. Did Jesus cease being God when he became human? Well, no. He emptied himself and Paul in verse 7 goes on to tell how that came about by taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So let's break this down just a little bit. This phrase, emptied himself, or emptied in this sense, is used four other times in the New Testament in uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 14, 1 Corinthians 1 and 1 Corinthians 9, as well as 2 Corinthians 9. So it's used four other times, and in all cases, it's um, more metaphorical, not literally like got rid of something, poured something out, and it no longer existed. It's metaphorical to mean making something of no account or lowering the status of something. And that's the sense here. Jesus lowered his status. His value to all appearances was reduced. So Jesus didn't lose or give up any aspect of his divine nature at the incarnation when he became a human being. Instead, he lowered his status. He reduced his status. And you get that sense in the way the NIV translates this verse in very much that way, that he made himself nothing. Uh, so he emptied himself in the sense he reduced his value, reduced his status. In other words, when you looked at Jesus, to all appearances, he looked like an ordinary human being. He looked like your average ordinary Jew living in Israel in the first century. We'll come to that here in just a second. So he emptied himself. He lowered his status. How? By taking the form of a bondservant. Notice that. He existed in the form of God in verse 6. He took on the form of a bondservant here in verse 7. Those phrases stand parallel to each other. Jesus took on the essence of a servant, serving others, uh, making himself available to the needs of others. He took on the very essence of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. He became human. Not just that he was like us. That's not the sense of that phrase. The phrase is he became in to in every conceivable way like human beings. In fact, the book of Hebrews chapter 2 Verses 14 through 17 say that he had to be made like us in every way. And so Jesus emptied himself by taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men.
Now, verse 8 carries that thought even further and says, and being found in appearance as a man. Again, the point is not that, well, he really wasn't human. He only looked human. Paul's point is that to all appearances, he only looked human. How low did Jesus go? Well, as Jesus empties himself and lowers his status, he went so low as to have no glowing halo over his head, nothing that indicated that this this person walking among them was actually the very creator of the universe who had existed in the very form of God. No, to all appearances, he looked just like an everyday, average, ordinary human being. So he lowered himself to the point where you couldn't tell that uh, this was God in the flesh. You couldn't tell that the fullness of deity dwelt in him in bodily form. He looked as human as everybody else. So, being found in appearance as a man, next main clause, he humbled himself. And so, in this section, we see that Jesus emptied himself and he humbled himself. And that's Paul's primary point by the way he has described Jesus here. He humbled himself as a man um, and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so in his self-giving and in his self-lowering, Jesus went from the very form of God to emptying himself, taking on the form of a servant, becoming human. And as a human, he went even further and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And so he emptied himself and he humbled himself and he went as low as a person could go in his time and his place. He didn't become a human being who... Uh, grasped at power and achieved great heights and achieved celebrity status and notoriety. No, he, he became a human being who obeyed his father all the way up to the point of death. And not just any death, death on a cross. In fact, in Greek, the word event isn't there. There's just almost like it just kind of hangs there. He humbled himself unto death death on a cross. That's the force of it. Why? Because the cross was the lowest imaginable kind of death that somebody in Jesus' world could possibly die. He went to the farthest extreme. He went to the lowest point. He died on a cross. That, that phrase, death on a cross, just hangs there as if it so staggered Paul that it took his breath away. And he didn't know how else to say it except, how low did Jesus go, man? He went death on a cross. Because crucifixion was the most despised and detested form of death known in Paul's world. The most despicable and horrific kind of execution that the Romans could have invented. Um, it was excruciating. That phrase excruciating literally means, in Latin, out of the cross. Uh, it, it, the cross was like the most horrific way a person could die. If you heard through the grapevine that so-and-so was crucified, your first thought would be, oh man, he must have done something absolutely terrible. The word cross and the idea of crucifixion 
wasn't even talked about in polite company in Roman circles because it was considered almost a vulgarity because it was so low, so awful, so horrific. Uh, the crucifixion was especially reserved for slaves and violent criminals and uh, as a form of sort of like almost state-sponsored terrorism in the outlying provinces on the edge of empire to kind of keep those those people on the edge of the empire in check. So no one would want to actually revolt against Rome because no one wanted to endure that. That's how how bad and awful crucifixion was. And yet this one who began existing in the form of God and lowered himself and lowered himself and lowered himself so far that he didn't just die. He died a death on a cross. That's the point of this whole sequence. You could almost track verses 6 through 8 as like a downward trajectory as God himself um, goes lower and lower and lower and lower until he can go no lower death on a cross. Um, and what's really important to see in verses 6 through 8 is the way Paul has worded this is, this is how the Son of God chose to express his godness. He existed in the form of God, and that wasn't something he used to his own advantage. Instead, he lowered himself and poured himself out to the, the uh, ultimate by death on a cross. That's, that's the humility and the self-giving and the self-lowering kind of nature that God himself has. That's the way Paul's word of this is. This is how God chose to express his godness. God's godness gets expressed in humble, self-giving, self-sacrificial kind of service to other people. And that's what Paul is calling on followers of Jesus to act like in their relationship with each other. Well, what's the result of that? Well, verses 9 through 11 then tells the, the ultimate result of that. Jesus lowered himself to the lowest low, but he didn't stay there. So verse 9 says, for this reason, and as a result of this, on account of this self-giving, self-lowering, self-sacrificial service, because of this also, God highly exalted him. Um, the phrase highly exalted is uh, it's exalted with a, the prefix hyper in front of it. Hyper exalted him, highly exalted him, hyper exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so he, he took this downward trajectory to the lowest point, but God vindicated him and highly exalted him to the highest place above everything else. Let's just make a couple observations about some of the specific language in this section. Um, so God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name. What name is that? Well, it's not just the name Jesus. That was a common name in Jesus' day. Just in Hebrew, Yeshua, it means Joshua. So it was a common name. So it's not just Jesus. What name was given to him? Well, I think you see that later in this sentence in verse 11 when it says, so that at the 
uh, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I think that's the name that God gave on him. He gave him the name Lord, ruler, overall. And in fact, in Paul's thought word, the word Lord, kurios in Greek, is the word that regularly translates the word Yahweh in the Greek version of the Old Testament. So you can get no higher name than that from a Jewish man's thinking. How high did God exalt Jesus? Well, he exalts him to the point where Jesus is given the very same title, the very same honor, the very same name as Yahweh himself, Lord Yahweh, to the glory of God the Father. So that's the name that he has given, the name Lord. And at this name, according to verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee, not just some, not just a few, not just those who like him, every knee, those who surrender now and those who don't want to surrender now but will ultimately surrender later, every knee will eventually acknowledge the lordship of Jesus, will bow before Jesus to acknowledge his kingship, his sovereignty, his power, his might, even his wisdom, his grace, his majesty. They will bow before him who is Lord. And Paul then lists off not the places so much where people live, but the scope of how broad this lordship goes. So every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, of those who are on, on earth, and those who are under the earth. The idea is to just say, let's cover all our bases in all of creation, in every realm where anything that lives, any being exists, every knee, every being in every place is going to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus. And so that's where he ends in verse 11, that every tongue, every tongue will confess that Jesus, the Messiah, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And to confess means to agree with, to say the same thing as. That's the idea. And so every tongue is going to agree with God's status and conferral on Jesus. This one is the true sovereign. This is the universe's true Lord. This is the true King of all the earth. He is Lord. And so um, Jesus, in this paragraph, takes this downward tra trajectory to the lowest low, and then he's exalted to the highest high by virtue of the vindication that God bestows upon him. Now, with that in mind, let's just offer a few reflections on what's going on in this section, and really the point here for us. That's why the context is so in mind. Jesus um, is offered here as the preeminent example of this self-giving, self-lowering approach to life. And we're urged at the outset of this section to think the same way, to have the same mindset, to have the same approach in, in our relationships and the way we conduct ourselves with other, others. The way Frank Thielman describes it in his commentary on Philippians is, he says, we are urged here to adopt an incarnational demeanor, an incarnational demeanor. What does he mean by incarnational demeanor? Well, the incarnation is the becoming flesh of God. And this text talks about how Jesus uh, existed as God, but added to that the, the nature of a human being and became a human and became a servant. And as a human, 
laid down his life for others. And we're urged here to adopt the same sort of approach uh, to our life as well. I like to describe it as um, basically living a cross-shaped life. A cross-shaped life that Jesus gave himself for the sake of others. And so, really, the point of this section is that followers of Jesus practice self-giving living. Followers of Jesus practice self-giving living by giving up our rights, by giving up our preferences, by giving up even our possessions, to serve others, to welcome others, to care for others, to meet the needs of others, even others who don't look the way we wish they looked or acted the way we wish they acted, right, who are different than us, who maybe haven't even, um, you know, come nearly as far in their walk of faith, maybe who aren't even interested in God yet, because we weren't when Jesus became flesh. So we practice self-giving living, not self-getting, not self-serving, but self-sacrificing, self-giving. That's the point of this section. And so as we we meditate on the self-giving life of Jesus, the whole point is we're supposed to imitate him and pattern our approach to life after that so that we lay down our other our life for others the way Jesus laid down his life for us that's the point of philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11 hey it's john thanks for checking out this session of the listener's commentary i pray it's super helpful to your understanding of the bible and your ability to follow jesus what many people don't know is that the listener's commentary is an entirely crowdfunded project which means it's made possible by the generosity of supporters just like you and so thank you to every one of you who supports the project and if you want to help support this project so that it can continue to grow and expand and i can continue to produce these commentaries just swing on over to the listenerscommentary.com click give and you can support right through there thanks so much